Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello WDFers, this is David Crowther from the History of England here with a brief message of congratulation and birthday wishes for Zach and the wonderful When Diplomacy Fails. I was lucky enough to get hold of one of the first episodes about Bannockburn for my own series, which was something of a triumph since it meant I didn't need to talk myself about the English getting walloped by the Scots, not something I could ever enjoy. So thanks for that Zach. And thanks also, Zach, for When Diplomacy Fails. It's a fantastic show, and I love Zach's style and panache. So congratulations, Zach, on your first birthday, and here's to many more. As long as war is regarded as wicked, it will always have its fascination. When it is looked upon as vulgar, it will cease to be popular. Oscar Wilde Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails, Episode 21, The War of the League of Cambrai. So where have I been for the past few weeks? Well, the unintended hiatus I put on this podcast is almost entirely due to the ridiculous amount of work I had to do for my exams. Okay, not really, but I did have exams, six of them in fact, And while I missed podcasting severely, I knew that it was my responsibility to learn such new exciting words as heteroscedasticity and multicollinearity, neither of which Microsoft Word recognises as either words or terms. In all seriousness though, the exams were hard, they are now finished, and I can now focus exclusively on this podcast for the next four months or so. It's going to be a great summer and a great new season of When Diplomacy Fails. I would like to remind you of a small anniversary before we begin though. You should have realised from that intro there, thanks to David Crowther from A History of England, that When Diplomacy Fails is now officially one year old. Happy birthday to us and all that jazz, but I'd also like to thank you, the listeners, for downloading the show even while I had vanished from podcasting land altogether. I'm so proud of how far we've come, and I can't wait to see how much further we go. If you listen to the last state of the podcast address, you'll be familiar with the changes, particularly at the end of the podcast, so stick around once the meat of this episode is over, and we'll see if this new formula works. Of course, let me know what you think through the usual channels. One final thing is the recent competition I launched, which would have given you the chance to decide the next episode for the podcast. 
At the end of this episode, I will announce the winner of that competition, and the lucky individual whose job it will be to choose our next word to cover. Let's hope they don't embarrass me in the process. Okay, with that housekeeping out of the way, I'd just like to say welcome back to this new season of When Diplomacy Fails, and thanks so much for your patience. I will now take you to the year 1494. When Giuliano della Rovere was elected Pope in 1503, he entered the papacy during the beginnings of the Italian Wars that would last from 1494 to 1559, or later, depending on which historians you talk to. By all accounts, della Rovere was a capable, cunning character who was not above committing relatively unholy acts to acquire more papal influence. Nephew of Pope Sixtus IV, Della Rovere rose to prominence during the 1470s, accumulating power and influence by way of his appointment as cardinal and to various bishoprics. But it wasn't until he became entangled in the fiercely competitive policies of the French King Charles VIII and the Borgia family occupying the papacy that he really began to make waves. When Louis XII decided to invade the Italian peninsula again and seize the Kingdom of Naples, the Borgia's papal regime collapsed when Charles made a stop off in Rome. Della Rivera wasn't too upset to see the Borgia's fall since he had never been their biggest fan. In his family's desperation, Cesare Borgia, son of the ousted Pope Rodrigo Borgia, made a desperate deal with Rovere to support Rovere's papal claims if Rovere agreed to support Rodrigo Borgia's policies. Della Rovere was already styling himself as Pope at this stage, and when the newly elected Pope Pius III died 26 days after his election, Rovere seized his opportunity, acquiring the necessary votes in the papal conclave of October 1503 to finally achieve his life's ambition as the head of the Catholic Church. Giuliano Della Rovere's path to the papacy was not especially unusual for the time, though his reign as pontiff would be anything but usual. Styling himself as the warrior pope, also nicknamed the fearsome pope by his friends, Della Rovere would be Pope Julius II. By 1500, the major players in Western Europe could be found in England, France, the Holy Roman Empire, Spain and numerous Italian city-states. The Italian peninsula, enjoying a cultural revolution in light of the Renaissance, began to acquire new levels of international attention either because of the sudden expansion of the Italian states, Venice, Florence, Milan or the Kingdom of Naples, or because, at least in the case of Milan, foreign attention had been invited there in the first place. The whole balance of power at the time can seem quite overwhelming, especially when we start delving into the forms of government, alliances and royal marriages that connected them all. Rest assured I will try to set the scene for pretty much every power in the region as best as I can, so let's get down to it now. England in 1500 was just 15 years removed from the Wars of the Roses, an exhausting conflict which lasted from 1455 to 1485 
and which resulted in the dawning of a new age for England, one in which the long-competing families of Lancaster and York eventually intermarried, enabling King Henry VII to rule in relative peace until his death in 1509. James Gardiner, in his book Henry VII, concludes on the end of Henry's reign at his achievements, and makes an interesting observation regarding the very war this podcast will soon cover. Quote, From the most unassuming beginnings, a proscribed man and an exile, he had won his way in evil times to a throne beset with dangers. He had pacified his own country, cherished commerce, formed strong alliances over Europe, and made his personal influence felt by the rulers of France, Spain and Italy, as that of a man who could turn the scale in matters of the highest importance to their own domestic welfare. It is true that he was not taken into counsel by the iniquitous League of Cambrai, but the matter did not concern England, and since his advice was rejected by the only power that he tried to warn, he was content to let it alone. He could afford to let such an alliance form and then fall to pieces, which it did very shortly after he was dead. End quote. Henry's guidance of his recovering kingdom during the shaky days after the Wars of the Roses confirmed England's place on the world stage upon his death. History buffs will know that England's toughest and most defining challenge lies ahead, though, in the next state we're set to look at, Spain. Spain was a relatively new idea in Europe by 1500. Only since 1469 had it existed as a unified state, when Isabella of Castile and Ferdinand II of Aragon married and joined their kingdoms together as one. Upon this pooling of resources, Spain became the richest, most powerful state in the world, upon its New World incursions. With territories that stretched across the Mediterranean, Spain also felt compelled to respond to any change in the balance of power within the Italian states. This new Kingdom of Spain, ruled by the same two monarchs who had unified it in 1469, also had perhaps the most intertwined series of royal marriages, metaphorment alliances, in Western Europe. The couple's first daughter, Isabella Jr., was married off to Prince Alfonso of Portugal. Their second daughter, Joanna, was married to Philip, son and heir of the Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian I. Their only son John married Margaret of Austria, cementing the alliance with the Habsburgs and further ensuring their alliance with the Holy Roman Empire. Their fourth child, Maria, married Manuel I of Portugal, when Maria's elder sister and firstborn of the couple, Isabella, suddenly died and Portugal and Spain felt they required more politically motivated marriage. Finally, the couple's fifth pawn, sorry, child, Catherine, married Arthur, Prince of Wales, but would remarry Arthur's brother Henry once Arthur died and Henry became King Henry VIII in 1509. What else? Oh yeah, Ferdinand II's brother was also the king of the Kingdom of Naples, so that meant Spain was also connected to the lower half of Italy, on top of its tying to England, Portugal and the Holy Roman Empire. If Spain was the king of marriages, then surely it was France that was the king of military conquest by 1500. In fact, if you wanted to draw a line and say, before this time period no one was that interested in Italy, and after this time period they were, then the reason that line exists is primarily due to France. Ciro Paoletti, in his book A Military History of Italy, 
notes on the background of the whole situation. Quote, In the second half of the 15th century, Italian states began a process of expansion. They all possessed relative military parity, they were all very rich, and the geopolitical situation was balanced. The Kingdom of Naples, the Republic of Venice, the Republic of Florence and the Duchy of Milan all competed with each other for the dominant position of power in Italy. The balance of power was disturbed and external forces returned to the peninsula when the Duke of Milan, Ludovico il Moro, opened a Pandora's box and asked the French king for assistance. End quote. Assistance against what, you may ask? Well, Ludovico of Milan feared that down south on the Italian peninsula, the King of Naples Alfonso of Aragon, remember the brother of the King of Spain, was constructing an alliance against him. What better way to scare Alfonso of Aragon off than to show Naples what big and powerful friends Milan possessed? France would sail down the peninsula, beat down Naples, then withdraw after making enough noise. But not too much noise, or else surely Alfonso's brother, King Ferdinand II of Spain, might feel it necessary to intervene as well on behalf of Naples. However, as Paoletti continues, things did not go according to plan for Ludovico of Milan, and his requests for French aid had perhaps a far greater impact than he could have initially realised. Quote, The French invasion of Italy ended the stalemate and altered the course of Italian history. France was allied with the Republic of Genoa, and King Charles of France was able to pass with his army unmolested along the coast and south, passing through Florence. He found no opposition. He entered Naples at the end of winter in 1494 and proclaimed himself king. Venice, Ludovico's old enemy, feared the considerable success of the Milanese-French alliance, and on March 31, 1495, had constructed the Italic League, an alliance against them. The Pope, Alexander VI, King Alfonso of Aragon and Naples, Venice, and eventually Ludovico il Moro, now himself fearing the French, joined the League. End quote. So Ludovico first asked Charles VIII to break apart what he feared was an alliance that Naples was creating against him, but then became so afraid of French successes that he joined the very real alliance that had been set up in response to the French invasion. Paoletti examines the long-term effects of Ludovico's mistake. Quote, the extent of the French conquests brought Charles VIII's rivals to the Italian peninsula. Ferdinand of Spain and Maximilian of the Holy Roman Empire worried for their dynastic possessions because of the French invasion. They responded by actively supporting the Italic League and dispatching funds and forces to Italy. Ferdinand sent a Spanish army commanded by Captain Cordova, which landed in Naples in the spring of 1495. Charles's army escaped complete destruction, but he lost money and materials in excess of 300,000 ducats and more than 1,000 men. His great invasion ended with a rapid retreat to France. As often happens in alliances, after the conclusion of the war the Allies' divergent interests manifested themselves and the members of the Leagues returned to their petty rivalries. Italy now became a battlefield for dynastic competition for the next 300 years. After the first French attempt in 1494, it was clear that the Republic of Venice was the only real contender for dominance in the peninsula. Venice's strong position, however, was complicated by papal resistance to accept such an alteration to Italian geopolitics. End quote. The brief interlude of peace was shattered again by Charles' successor to the French throne and cousin, Louis XII. 
Louis believed that it was within his capabilities to succeed where his cousin had failed, and he launched an attack, not on Naples, but on Milan in 1499. Louis' swift seizure of the city was vindication for Louis' ambitions, but Louis wanted more. Like Charles before him, Louis had his eye on Naples, but unlike Charles before him, Louis was able to construct an alliance between himself and Ferdinand of Spain, whereby the two would divide the spoils of the conquest of the Kingdom of Naples. Now you may be thinking, why would Ferdinand of Spain arrange to divide up the lands of his own brother? Well the answer is very simple, they were not in the hands of his brother anymore. Alfonso of Aragon had died only weeks after the French retreat, to have his son succeed him, and then for his son, Ferentino, to die. The crown of Naples then passed to Frederick IV, uncle of Ferentino and cousin of Ferdinand II of Spain. That's grand then, you might be thinking, the kingdom is still within Ferdinand's extended family, so surely Ferdy can just leave the whole region alone. Well actually he couldn't do that. Ferdinand seemed not only to want more complete control over the Kingdom of Naples, but he also seemed to not have liked his cousin Frederick all that much. This meant that Ferdinand was more than willing to use the Kingdom of Naples as a pawn in his French negotiations, and that Louis was probably under the impression that Ferdinand didn't want anyone but close family sitting on the throne. Cousin Freddy was deposed once the Franco-Spanish forces invaded the Kingdom of Naples in 1501. After concluding the Treaty of Granada, which proclaimed that the two states were allies. Inevitably, peace between France and Spain didn't last very long when they attempted to divide up Naples. Arguments over the spoils of Naples, who would rule what and by what right, reignited the war between the two, and Ferdinand, with his ever present naval power and with greater military minds under his authority, such as Captain Cordova, succeeded in expelling French forces from the Italian peninsula. By 1505, Louis had renounced his claim to Naples, though he still held on to Milan, and both Spain and France settled down for what they thought would be another period of peace, considering that both had been at war with each other repeatedly and had now apparently exhausted any issues between them. But a third party would drag them into conflict soon enough. This time, however, it would not be because of issues between themselves that the two would fight, and it would not be at the request of a king or republic. It would be at the behest of the leader of the Catholic Church, the warrior Pope, Julius II. The Holy Roman Empire stretched across modern-day Austria, Germany, the Czech Republic and the Slovak Republic, the Netherlands, Belgium, Hungary, parts of the Balkans and through parts of Poland. It was a gigantic swathe of territory, and an invaluable ally for France, Spain, Portugal, England or any of the Italian states to have, but it was also incredibly unwieldy as a result of its size and governmental style. In my opinion, it's easy to think of the Holy Roman Empire as a kind of EU, whereby every state or ethnic identity that could be accused of trying to forge its own independent policy answered to whoever was the emperor of the Holy Roman lands at the time. It ceased to be a true empire by the early 18th century, in that its internal states, such as Prussia in 1700, began to make louder moves on the world stage that belied the notion of a single united force, and Prussia would even fight against the Holy Roman Empire in Austria's 1740 War of Succession, proving, at least in Prussia's case, how much the power of the empire had waned. But that's a story for the future. 
The Holy Roman Empire's power lay in the fealty of the vassals across the empire and their loyalty to the Habsburg line of emperors, who were soon associated solely with Austria, but who would go on to expand ferociously into Hungary in the 17th century, a move which placed power on the Habsburgs rather than the Holy Roman Empire itself, and thus ensured that the Habsburg line of succession would continue. Robert Evans and Peter Wilson, co-editors of the book The Holy Roman Empire, 1495-1806, A European Perspective, note on the situation. Quote, The establishment of almost continuous Habsburg rule after 1438 was part of a wider process that gave the empire its distinctively early modern shape around 1500. This used to be discussed as an imperial reform a rubric which was restricted to efforts by the empire's leading churchman Berthold von Henneberg, Archbishop of Mainz, from 1484 to 1504, to redefine the relationship between the empire and his leading vassals. Increasingly, this term is now understood to describe a broader process of institutional consolidation and the dissemination of a common political culture during the century after 1470. Nonetheless, most still regard the meeting of an imperial diet, Reichstag, staged by Hennenberg in 1495 as a significant milestone, and it remains customary to take this date as the start of early modernity, both for the empire and for German history. End quote. Holy Roman interest in Italy centred on its dynastic and balance of power concerns. There were a number of princes and princesses within the Holy Roman Empire, one of which we already saw married into the new Spanish state, but it was in the republics found on the Italian peninsula that these royals could be sent to. Marry into a position of power in, say, Venice, and even despite the republican government, influence would be considerable. Thus, the Holy Roman Empire was likely a little peeved when it learned of France's annexation of Milan, since that rid the Holy Roman Empire of a chance to advance its own interests. Of course, Holy Roman interest in the Italian peninsula was also strategic, and the Holy Roman Empire also happened to desire the territory of another power in the region, my previous marriage example, Venice. Ciro Paoletti, author of the previously referenced A Military History of Italy, notes on the situation, quote, The only Italian power wealthy enough to resist French and Spanish power was Venice. Unfortunately, the Venetian lords had two enemies apart from the other two states. In addition to Spain and France, the Holy Roman Empire was the third external enemy. He was the master of Trentino, Upper Adige, Friuli, Slovenia and Croatia, whose coastline was Venetian Dalmatia, and he wanted it. The fourth enemy was the great lord of the sublime gate of happiness, the Sultan of the Ottoman Turks, master of the east, whose armies were slowly moving north in the Balkans and west into the Mediterranean menacing Venetian dominions on land and sea. End quote. Venice faced a whole host of problems in its position of economic strength. Jealous rivals existed in France, Spain and the Holy Roman Empire, while real external threats existed in the Ottoman Empire. However, for Venice, none of these threats came close to the one emerging out of the Papal States. It was just one man, but the ambitions of this man would seek to bring Venice to ruin. That man was Pope Julius II. Considering the fact that this podcast more or less revolves around Venice, I feel it's only fair to give something of a background to the city-state, which by the time Pope Julius sought to undermine it, had forged something of an empire based out of economic dominance, the science of trade, and the logistics of naval power. 
David Gilmore, in his book The Pursuit of Italy, explains the origins of one of medieval Europe's most fascinating cities. Quote, Venice is said to have been founded in AD 421 by refugees from the mainland fleeing Vandal invaders. In the following century they were joined by others escaping the Lombards. They settled on the islets, mud flats and sandbanks of the lagoon. But in the early 9th century they established their capital on the safer central islands of the Rialto. Bleak and inhospitable though their lagoon must have seemed, it provided a secure sanctuary. The problem was less how to defend than how to inhabit what was largely a swamp. For centuries the inhabitants drained and dredged, diverting silt-carrying rivers from the lagoon and converting sandbanks into islands which they could build upon. In its early years, Venice was governed from the Exarchate of Ravenna, and its due, later Doge, was a vassal duke of the Byzantine Empire. Later it became autonomous, but the link between Venice and Constantinople remained strong until the 13th century. End quote. And Gilmore continues to elaborate on Venice's history. Quote, For an empire with little commercial outlets, the trade and shipping of the islanders made Venice a very useful ally. The lagoon also benefited from Byzantine's cultural influence and from trading links with different parts of the empire. Another boon was Charlemagne's decision, after two failed assaults on the Lido, to let Venice remain tied to the Byzantines, thereby excluding it from his kingdom of Italy and from the Holy Roman Empire. Until the early 15th century, Venice turned its back on the peninsula and concentrated initially on the eastern shores of the Adriatic. Needing Istria for its stone and Dalmatia for its timber, it gained control of their coasts and, around the turn of the millennium, its doge proclaimed himself ruler over Dalmatia and Croatia, a title with implications that the kings of Hungary resented. After the crusade and the pillaging of Byzantium, Venice ceased to be simply a maritime republic with trading posts scattered across the Mediterranean. It became a colonial power that acquired, together with many smaller places, Crete in the 13th century, Corfu and parts of Moria in the 14th, Cyprus and Salonika in the 15th, and Cephalonia in 1500. End quote. This brings us almost to 1505, when Pope Julius started to consider making real efforts to curb Venetian influence, which he believed was sapping his influence over Venice's hearts and minds, as well as smearing the image of the Papal States, since the wealth of Rome paled in comparison to Venice's years-long accumulation of overseas trading posts. Venice was also great domestically as well as internationally, and the reason for this is difficult to explain. Unlike Genoa, Venice's chief rival until the 14th century, Venice was a picture of near-complete tolerance and cooperation. Factionalism, that blight on the majority of Italian cities including even Florence, was the name given to the fighting for power and influence that occurs between powerful and influential families within a city. That factionalism is worse within city-states should not come as a surprise. In somewhere like France, for example, a wealthy noble family could relocate if necessary to the other side of the country and start over, recreating their family name and giving their descendants ample opportunities to prosper. In a city-state, though, you couldn't go anywhere outside of that city. Even in city-states that controlled exterior lands, such as Venice, the city itself was seen as the main event, and Italians were very city-minded during this time, in terms of cultural pride and heritage, and many still are today. So, because one couldn't just relocate elsewhere, families competed with one another instead, 
and thus seriously split the resources of their native city-state. In the most extreme cases, where such families controlled that city's means of production or its most fertile land, the results were catastrophic. David Gilmore describes an interesting byproduct of this factionalism. Quote, Aristocratic factionalism, too many nobles competing for too few offices, often developed into warfare. As the magnates lived in cities rather than castles in the country, they felt the need to build urban strongholds in the form of medieval skyscrapers, towers sometimes 200 feet high, a phenomenon now best represented in Bologna, where 22 of its more than 80 towers are still fully or partially standing. Florence in its heyday contained even more, perhaps as many as 150. Such structures were clearly designed for military purposes to serve as a watchtower and refuge and defence of bastion, but they were also objects of prestigious value, of ostentation and arrogance and the desire to intimidate. They answered to man's perennial yearning to build higher than his neighbours, to tower above them." End quote. Perhaps this is sidetracking a bit, but I always enjoy examining how the region I'm looking at works and what makes its people tick. City-states possess their own distinct lands and culture, and with the onset of the Renaissance, this cultural pride became competition on an even greater, more realised scale than before. It helps to explain why Italy took so long to unify, since it was still utilising the city-state model until well into the 19th century. When I talk about a family ruling a city, it is likely because they have succeeded over their rivals and established a form of dynasty of their own. Rulers who did this, came to power and established their own dynastic line, were called signori, and the English term for this type of government is signorial rule. Signorial rule was best personified in Florence, where the Medici, a wealthy upper-class family of bankers, and who made an appearance in Assassin's Creed II, the protagonist, Ezio Auditore, being a Medici, ruled Florence for nearly a century, and spread their rule elsewhere. The Borgia family did it also, however, except they were able to rise to the top of the papal offices, with Rodrigo Borgia acquiring the office of the Holy See as Pope Alexander VI in the late 15th century, also seen in Assassin's Creed II. Thus, it can often be useful to see the city-state rivalry as a kind of Game of Thrones, or power struggle between families. The Medici resided in Florence, the Zvorzas in Milan, and the Borgias in Rome. The place where such competition was so notably absent, and where its citizens went to great lengths reminding everyone of this fact, was in Venice. In Venice, Pope Julius II saw the greatest challenge to his rule. Because he wanted to make Rome great in line with the customs of the High Renaissance, Julius saw the stable and unified Venice as the only state capable of thwarting his dream of Catholic empire ruled by its warrior pope. Taking Venice down from its position of power would be no easy task. Many had tried before and failed, halted by Venice's chief guardian, Venice itself. So treacherous and complicated were the tides and intertwined lagoons surrounding the city that only someone with a detailed map or extreme navigational skill could traverse the treacherous waters and land an army to capture the city. Arabs, the Genoese, the Turks, Charlemagne's son, Charlemagne himself, all failed to master Venice's complex series of largely naturally occurring fortifications. Once the Venetians themselves had overcome the difficulties in placing their homes in the sinking ground, they overcame the only obstacle to their success. With knowledge of their own dangerous shores under their belt, and after constructing ingenious strategies in order to overcome them, 
the Venetians were able to adapt their knowledge across the Adriatic and become, for a time at least, the greatest sailors the world had ever seen. David Gilmore notes on Venice during a tour he took of the city, quote, The voyage reminds you of how real and important the maritime life still is to the economy and livelihood of the lagoon. Among the lines of fishing vessels, the boats of pilots and coast guards are constantly busy. Beyond the island fortresses, oil tankers ply their way to and from the refinery at Port Magera. Everywhere you notice the maintenance operations, the boatyards and the dry docks, the incessant dredging, the resitting and replacing at the Bricoli and other ports. You become aware of how the lagoon is defended along the Adriatic when you see the great sea walls of the Palestrina, erected to stop the waves from breaking in, sweeping away the port and swamping other islands. End quote. Gilmore then explains the implications of such surroundings for Venetian expansion. Quote, Knowledge of the lagoon, allied to supreme nautical skill, enabled Venice to become a great sea power. Its galleys, rowed very largely by free men, not slaves, were the Mediterranean's most effective fighting ships until the mid-16th century. By contrast with Genoa, where business was an affair of individuals, the Venetian state directed much of the city's economic life. It regulated trade, organised convoys for its merchant marine, and ran the great shipping yards of the Arsenal, which was the largest factory in the West, capable in a crisis of constructing several galleys a week. The yard's workforce of about 1,500, known as the Arsenalati, were well rewarded for their skills, each receiving annually, among other benefits, 500 litres of wine. In the early 16th century, Venice was the richest and most splendid city in Christian Europe. Its wealth generated by trade and the production of vast quantities of silk and glass, its largest employer, with a thousand looms, was the silk industry. End quote. How Venetians made their money and the fact that they made a whole lot of it was not the only thing about the Venetians that irked Pope Julius II. Venice itself was far more interested in its own national identity than being merely a Christian state controlled by way of its proximity to the Pope. Venetians knew their state was different. It was richer, more peaceful, and seriously prosperous. If Venice had had, say, 400,000 more citizens and had been able to accommodate them, we might be talking about how Venice created an Italian empire before the 1860s years of unification. But I'll leave the alternative history to Jordan Harbour. David Gilmore highlights the differences between Venice and the rest of Italy that so grinded Pope Julius's gears. Quote, Venice was celebrated for its religious and racial tolerance, though its citizens were not of course devoid of religious fervour. They stole the body of St. Mark from Alexandria and the relics of other saints as well. They were serious about the cause of church reform and they reacted to plagues by building the great churches of the Salute and the Redentor. Yet, as James Morris has observed, there is no sense of priestly power in Venice. Religion was important, but it was subordinate to the state. The doges, not the bishops, were its protectors. The people were Venetians first and Christians afterwards, an attitude that naturally provoked the anger of various popes, who periodically placed the city under an interdict. End quote. So Venice had its own way of doing things religiously, it was making lots of money faster than anyone else, and it was also expanding its values, ideas and empire to Adriatic and beyond. Julius feared, as did those in Italy safe behind their own city walls, that Venice would turn its gaze inward, 
to the peninsula with a focus enhanced by years of naval conquest and enrichment, to the detriment of all independent city-states. It was the Italian concern, and the strategic and economic concerns of the French, Spanish and Holy Romans, that Pope Julius hoped to be able to capitalise on. Venice had forced his hand in Julius's mind because of the recent activity of expansion undertaken by the Republic. In 1503, once they realised that their former Borgia masters were vulnerable, the Romagna lords swore fealty and asked for Venetian protection before Julius could get to them. A small territory covering some important points along Italy's Adriatic coastline south of Venice, Romagna was in Julius's mind naturally papal territory, and the papal states did require the land if Julius's future plans for expanding the papal influence throughout Italy and Europe were to be successful. So Julius sent his first feelers out to the empire, whom he knew wished to see Venice fall almost as much as he did, Maximilian of the Holy Roman Empire. If you remember back to before, I mentioned that the HRE desired the lands in Dalmatia that were owned by Venice, practically tiny naval outposts used by Venice as harbours to secure their trade routes along the Mediterranean and their route back home and Maximilian began to see an alliance with France, Spain and the papacy as his chance to seize what he wanted. Even though the Venetians had agreed to recognise papal control over the Romanga territories and had promised to pay Julius tribute, they refused to actually give up the cities and lands they had received. This in itself was seen by Julius as a casus belli, but he endeavoured to use Maximilian's newfound favour with him to try and get the job of Venice done for him. Julius in 1508 had named Maximilian elected Roman Emperor, and ended the age-old custom of the papacy requiring the Holy Roman Emperor to travel to Rome and be crowned Emperor officially by the Pope himself. It sounds like a small issue, but it was a hugely important one for Maximilian. He could now claim his legitimacy without having to bend the knee at Rome, and I'm sure part of him hoped that the association between his position as Holy Roman Emperor and the Pope would soon fizzle out so that his future descendants wouldn't require the knee-bending either, and that the two entities, empire and papacy, would become politically separate. That's my take on the situation anyway, because Maximilian didn't hesitate to act fast, leading an army to Venice as soon as he made a trip to Rome. The army was defeated in February 1508 though, by Bartolomeo Alviano, a veteran Italian mercenary general for hire, who had made his name ruining Maximilian's plans. Julius was incensed at this loss, but became even more incensed when the Holy Romans attacked again and were again repulsed, only this time it was even worse for Maximilian because Alviano seized the Adriatic cities of Trieste and Fiume. Furious at this stage, Julius turned to Louis XII of France. Louis had a special interest in expanding his Italian territories, and even though Pope Julius well knew that the interests of Louis and Maximilian and Ferdinand of Spain conflicted on numerous levels, he still invited all of them to treat, and sent out a general invite to all Christian nations to join him in his crusade against the Venetian state. The agreement was hammered out on the 10th of December 1508, and the details are covered by Italian author Francesco Guicciardini. Quote, the agreement provided for the complete dismemberment of Venice's territory in Italy and for its partition among the signatories. Maximilian, in addition to regaining Istria, would receive Verona, Vicenza, Padua and the Friuli. France would annex Brescia, Crema, Bergamo and Cremona to its Milanese possessions. Ferdinand 
would seize Otranto and the remainder, including Romini and... Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ravenna will be added to the papal states. End quote. The War of the League of Cambrai had begun as soon as the members declared themselves ready for war. Hostilities would start in the new year, in what Julius believed would be a successful war. Little did he know just how quickly the entire venture would descend into farce. But Zack, you might be thinking, the diplomacy can't be over yet, surely. You're quite right, history friend, it's not. This is probably the greatest example of a war that contains more actual diplomacy than the build-up to war itself, so don't worry. I selected this war specifically because it was incredibly convoluted. The participants so confused, the alliance switching and signing so hilarious, let's get down to it and you'll soon see exactly what I'm talking about. It was Louis who began the first real offensives of the war. He left Milan in early April of 1509 and marched towards Venetian territory with an army of about 45,000. To oppose him was a mercenary army hired by Venice, commanded by the two Orsini cousins, one being Niccolò de Pitigliano, the other being Bartolomeo Alviano, who we met before. The main problem with these two cousins, though, was that they didn't exactly get along. Originally, their orders had been to merely defend and not attack, But Alviano believed going on the offensive was Venice's best chance of victory, so Alviano moved his forces towards a detachment of French troops under the command of the French governor of French-occupied Milan, Charles de Ambuy. The problem was that Alviano's cousin, Patigliano, commanded his own section of the 25,000-strong Venetian army, and Patigliano didn't much fancy engaging the French in battle until they could find a better position so Patigliano continued his trek southwards in search of a better field to fight in, 
while Alviano believed he had found that field and sent word to Petigliano to join him. While engaging the small detachment, Alviano seemed to be making progress. The French, under D'Ambuy's command, couldn't break his line due to the strategic placement of ditches, ditches which Alviano believed made that battlefield so ideal. But when Louis heard that the detachment separate from his main force was in trouble, he sped to join them so as to come at Alviano from a different angle. Alviano was informed of this and sent urgent word to his cousin for reinforcements. But his cousin seems little interested in trying to save the day. He simply told Alviano to disengage and fight another day in another place, a request Alviano simply could not carry out. And so Alviano and his army were now surrounded by a numerically superior force. They were all destroyed over a period of hours on all sides, by superior French numbers, and more and more the Venetian army melted away until all had vanished. Alviano was wounded and taken prisoner, while the detachment of mercenaries Petigliano commanded deserted themselves once they learned of the devastating defeat and the now hopeless situation Venice was in. Louis continued to advance through Lombardy and seized it all, while Pope Julius commanded a papal army into the Romagna and seized that for Rome. The battle in itself was a catastrophic disaster for Venice. Although not technically defeated, it would never be the same confident, sovereign, city-state empire again. This battle, the Battle of Agnadello, is mentioned in Machiavelli's The Prince, in which Machiavelli noted that in one day, the Venetians lost what they had taken 800 years of exertion to conquer. But the war does not end there. In fact, even though they were surrounded by four hostile European powers, the Venetians clung to the bases they still owned, while Venetian insurgents rebelled against the occupiers in the areas that they did not. Although Louis reached as far as Brescia in Lombardy before encountering any resistance, and although Maximilian received the capitulation of many important satellites of Venice, the new imperial and in French governors proved highly unpopular with the local Venetian and sympathetic towards Venetian populations. By way of localised revolts, Venetian forces were able to take back from the French and Holy Romans much of what had been lost before. The Venetian Senate knew full well that the tables were stacked squarely against them, and sent feelers out to Julius for a peace settlement in December 1509. Julius was ready for peace with Venice, because he had plans for war elsewhere. He imposed harsh terms on the Venetians, insisting that Venice give up the Romagna to him, forgo its right to appoint bishops in its own lands, and pay reparations to Rome in order to cover the cost of Julius' occupation of the Romagna. The Venetian Senate reckoned they had little choice but to accept the peace terms, since the four-on-one war was ruining their economy, and so they acquiesced reluctantly in February 1510 to Julius's terms. David Gilmore brings us up to speed while also explaining the bizarre next phase of this war. Quote, Venice soon suffered a catastrophic defeat at the Battle of Agnadello and lost most of its imperial possessions. Restricted to little more than the lagoon, it was saved unexpectedly by the mercurial Julius, who suddenly identified France as the chief danger to the peninsula. Switching sides and joining Venice, the Pope also managed to persuade Spain and the Holy Roman Empire to enter his new coalition, the Holy League of 1511. And now that the new enemy was France, Henry VIII of England joined in too. End quote. Yes, you heard that correctly. Julius appears to have made the exact same mistake as Milan had made years before, and realised upon inviting the help of the French against his enemies that a. 
the French were actually doing quite well against his enemies, and B, the French didn't really want to leave or give up their spoils. Julius didn't much like seeing French influence expand on the Italian peninsula, and saw the next phase of the war as natural progression, even while we may view it as complete diplomatic ridiculousness. William J. Moylan, in his absolutely insane book about Nostradamus of all things, does in fact jump through Italian history in search of the prophesied King of Terror. He searches in this period of Italian history with a surprising level of insight. Just don't read the rest of the book and you'll be fine. He writes, quote, The resulting War of the Holy League of Cambrai was a kaleidoscope of shifting alliances. The French defeated the Venetian army at the Battle of Agnadello, capturing extensive territories, but Julius, now regarding the French as the greater threat, left the League and allied himself with Venice. After a year of fighting over the Romagna, Julius proclaimed a Holy League against the French. This rapidly grew to include England, Spain, and the Holy Roman Empire. End quote. The real reason for Julius' sudden turning against the French should really take into account the fact that Julius desired land owned by the Duchy of Ferrara, an ally of France, and that the expansion Julius planned for the Papal States would have run right through French plans for the region, and Julius knew it. Perhaps it was a smart move to have used his allies in the League of Cambrai to take Venice down a peg, so that Venice would be more susceptible to an alliance with Rome that would benefit Julius. But Venice would prove to be as unpredictable as the rest of them when it came to alliances, as Julius would soon find out. For now, though, it all seemed rosy. Papal Venetian troops forced the French out of Vicenza, which is a city that isn't actually Venice, but is also in the province of Veneto that Venice and Vicenza are named after, hence my incredible confusion and me wondering how the Venetians exactly are reinforcing something occupied by the French, etc., Vicenza is 60 kilometers east of Venice itself, and was thus a crucial place to expel enemy French soldiers from. Louis also now had to factor in the English, Spanish and Holy Romans who were suddenly against him. So progress was far more cautious than before. The Papal Venetian Alliance continued to prove its mettle throughout August 1510, as Medina was captured by the Alliance on the 17th. This pushed the French further back from their initial Italian gains, and forced Louis to attack, which he soon did. Louis bribed the detachment of Swiss Guard men to fight him in October and proceeded to invade northern Italy. Julius, panicked at the realisation that the city of Bologna was willing to simply let the French pass, stepped up the activity of his military campaign, with the result that the papal coffers were soon running dry. But Julius raised enough funds for a final army of the campaigning year in December 1510, and sent it into the jaws of the French attack. The Venetians lost a crucial battle on the Po River when their navy was destroyed by the Duchy of Ferrara's cannon. Remember that duchy Julius had originally turned on France for. This left Bologna isolated and vulnerable to capture by the French, since even though Julius knew the Bolognese weren't so fond of him, he was pretty sure that the city falling into the hands of the French would be bad, so he was put in the awkward position of defending his Bolognese enemies from French attack, while the Bolognese sat behind their walls with very smug faces. Papal Venetian forces took Concordia, Castelfranca, and Mirandola, while the French military struggled with the gap left in their high command after d'Amboy's death. When he was replaced in early February 1511 by Gian Giacomo Trivulzio, things began to go pear-shaped for Julius once again, so much so that he now called the aforementioned Holy League against France, 
and such was its appeal that England, who had thus been absent and neutral from the dismemberment of Venice, was now a clear player on the scene. Henry VIII of England had signed the Treaty of Westminster in November 1511 with Ferdinand of Spain, a treaty which pledged mutual assistance against the French incursions into Italian lands, but Henry also used the opportunity to expand his dominions in northern France at the expense of a distracted French defence. Such was the constant game of back and forth between the French and English kingdoms. In February 1512, Louis appointed his nephew, Gaston de Foix, as commander-in-chief of the French forces, primarily in northern Italy. Foix was a great commander, and was able to mount sustained assaults across north Italy even while Henry's invasion force threatened France's rear. Foix and the Alfonso de Est, Duke of Ferrara, that erstwhile French ally after all these years, knew that, since France was threatened on so many sides, forcing a crucial battle was of the utmost importance. So to this end, the French army besieged Ravenna, the last papal stronghold in Julius's beloved Romagna. The battle that resulted from Foix's pushing of the Holy League was a devastating success for the French, as Spanish forces, under the command of Raymond de Cordova, were defeated on the 11th of April 1512 in the Battle of Ravenna. The success of Louis's forces may have been complete had his prize general de Foix not died in the fighting. France's forces were now placed under the new command of the hesitant general Jacques de la Pelice, who refused to move on his own initiative and waited instead for direct orders from the king, paralysing the kind of warfare France needed to fight in order to keep pace with the rapid situation in each theatre. Though de la Pelice did thoroughly sack Ravenna, likely to the sizzling rage of Julius. By May 1512, the situation had turned against France. Hardly surprising, considering the fact that the near entirety of Europe was effectively against it. During the summer, the French would be pushed out of Milan, the Romagna, and back over the Alps by a resurgent Venetian-Swiss army, and French commander de la Pelice proved powerless to stop their advance. In late August, the members of the Holy League met at Mantua to discuss the implications for what they had just accomplished, and how they planned to divide the formerly French-Italian territories amongst themselves. On the agenda also was the question of Florence, whom Julius despised after the Florentines had thrown open their gates to Louis on numerous occasions. Julius's frustrations were duly noted, and Raymond de Cordova, advanced into Florence, demolished its resistance, and installed a league puppet in the form of a Medici family member. So they were not all as nice as Ezio after all, then. The Allied Conference at Mantua also established the numerous divides present within its five members. England was more concerned with fighting France in Normandy and Flanders than with any military intervention in northern Italy. Ferdinand of Spain disagreed with Maximilian as to which one of their relatives should control Florence while Julius, representing Rome, and Venice maintained that Florence should remain a republic. Furthermore, Venice was left out in the cold by Julius and Maximilian. When Max refused to grant Venice any of its territories, it had been promised by way of its alliance with the Holy League. When representatives of the Venetian Senate complained loudly in the conference, representatives of Julius agreed with Maximilian to completely exclude Venice from the expected peace negotiations from France. When word reached the Venetian Senate that Venice and Maximilian had conspired to prevent any of the spoils of war that they had participated heavily in from coming into their hands, there was uproar. Strong objections were sent to Julius, and Julius replied that he would under no circumstances reverse his agreement made with Max, 
and if the Venetians didn't like it, they could just get out there and try to find a better deal, or something to that effect. But a new faction was emerging within the Venetian Senate which believed that it could find a better deal. The irony was that this better deal was its enemy for the past four years, and that if it did go with this better deal, then Venetian politics would look really, really ridiculous to future historians. Okay, I'm kidding about that last part, but nonetheless, I'm sure that the other members of the Holy League were at least a bit surprised when Venice announced that it was abandoning them in favour of a military alliance with France, and that henceforth, after formally signing the agreement with France on the 23rd of March, 1513, they were now to be enemies once again. Let's leave Venice teetering on the edge of diplomatic incoherence for the moment, while we look at the other two players in the war. I've really only mentioned England and Henry VIII so far in passing, but on June the 28th, 1513, England would see the range of the Italian Wars, I'm calling it that to simply summarise the years of complicated leagues we've seen since 1508, expand to its home domains, thanks to James IV, King of Scotland, and his declaration of war on England. Henry was furious at James's act for two reasons. The first being the easiest one to understand. James was married to his sister Margaret, an act which was meant to symbolise unity and cooperation between the two kingdoms where there had once been centuries of friction. The second reason requires a small amount of backtracking. In 1503, James and Henry's father, Henry VII, had agreed to sign the Treaty of Perpetual Peace, a guarantee which proclaimed peace between the two kingdoms and an end to the incessant tit-for-tat wars that had drained Britain of its appeal as a holiday destination. James's breaking of the Treaty of Perpetual Peace also provoked an excommunication from Pope Leo X. That's right, not Pope Julius II, since Julius died on the 21st of February, 1513. Obviously, the death of Julius is in itself a momentous event, and we'll cover it in a bit. But first, let's continue with our look at England and Scotland. James's violation of the Treaty of Perpetual Peace and his subsequent invasion of England might suggest a certain determination or the desire on the part of James to really challenge the English prominence on the British Isles. In fact, James claimed he was simply honouring the old alliance with France, that age-old tradition between the French and Scottish monarchs of squeezing England together. While Henry laid siege in early July to Thuran in northern France, James sent him a letter informing him of war and asking him to stand down and return to England. Henry was understandably furious, and he sent the reply, Recommend me to your master, and tell him, if he be so hardy to invade my realm, or cause, to enter one foot of my ground, I shall make him as weary of his part as ever any man was that began any such business. And one thing I ensure him, by the faith that I have to the crowns of England and by the word of a king, there shall never be king, nor prince, make peace with me, that ever shall his part be in it. Moreover, fellow, I care nothing but for mistreating of my sister, that would God she were in England on a condition she cost the Scots king not a penny. James ignored the anger within Henry's reply and set off to invade England with 30,000 men on the 18th of August 1513. The problem was, though, James operated through what he believed was a form of chivalric code, in that he forewarned the English a month in advance of his intention to invade so that the Scots lost one of their greatest advantages, surprise. It also gave the English time to raise an army and collect the symbolic relics used in previous wars against Scotland. On the 24th of August, James crossed the River Tweed, 
that geographically significant river in that it runs for much of its length along the Anglo-Scot border. And on the 27th of August, Catherine of Aragon, whom Henry had named Regent of England while he was campaigning in France, issued orders for all land owned by Scottish nobles in England to be seized. James continued to march south, necessitating an English response once James and his army reached the village of Brangston in Northumberland. The battle took place on September 5th, 1513 at 11am, and saw the slaughter of thousands. Today, it is remembered as the last time a king would be killed in battle on the British Isles, but it is significant also for representing an end of an era in medieval warfare. The English in this battle used the bill or halberd, while the Scots used the tried and tested method of pike square formations. As if transported from the past, both sides fought in a fashion not dissimilar to that of the Romans over 1500 years before. James obviously had different ideas about how a battle should be fought to his English counterparts. The English, led by Sir Thomas Hawley, a highly respected Englishman who held the Cross of St George as his banner and officially held the position of the Rouge Cross Poisson, fought in the Renaissance style of holding nobility and commanders at the back of the line, while James insisted on fighting in the medieval fashion with his commanders at the front lines, which meant that the Scots formations fell apart once their commanders died in rapid succession, and also helps to account for the sheer number of Scottish nobility and VIP casualties. English chronicler Edward Hall noted that the battle was cruel, none spared other, and the king himself fought valiantly while Brian Tuke, Assistant Secretary to Henry VIII, noted that the Scots fought in very good order after the German fashion, but concluded, the English halberders decided the whole affair, so that in the battle the bows and ordnance were of little use. Yet bows and ordnance did cut down much of the Scots' forces when James made the erroneous decision to move down from his position at the top of the hill and engage the English head-on. The Battle of Flodden Field, as it came to be known, also saw the English cannon used to its most effective extent here, while their Scottish counterparts failed to see the significance of the weapon, and used them mainly to demoralise the English enemy with wildly inaccurate overhead shots. Regardless of the tactics used, Scottish reps were desperate enough after the battle to plead for international help. King Christian II of Denmark was contacted by the Scottish Council, but Christian was less than interested in supporting a shaky Scottish position for little gain, and the small cameo of the Danes within the wider Italian wars of this period begins and ends there. The loss at the Battle of Flodden Field tore the heart out of the Scottish war effort, and this is hardly surprising considering the awful casualties incurred. The figures range from 5,000 to 25,000 killed, with a number in between that also maimed. Whatever the actual number, Edward Hall described the results of the battle best when he claimed that the best generation and flower of Scotland were slain. Today, the residents of the nearby Scottish town of Coldstream mark the Battle of Flodden Field by a yearly traditional horse ride to the battlefield and then having a service to mark all those who perished during the fight. Perhaps it's also worth keeping in mind that a grand plan for a great memorial service or symbolic act of some kind is in place for September 5th to 9th this year, to mark the fact that it would have been 500 years since the battle occurred. But let's look at the continuation and conclusion of the Italian Wars, which is now entering its final phase. 1513 was a year of catastrophic disaster for the French-Venetian alliance as losses against the Holy League only grew more costly as the year went on. 
The French loss at Navarra, despite greater numbers than their Swiss enemy, was one such example of a defeat which led to many others, and by August the Holy League forces, comprised mainly of Spain's elite, had penetrated deep into Venetian territory and claimed to be within sight of Venice itself. Unable to cross the lagoon though, the forces under the command of the Spanish general Cordova retreated to Lombardy, where they were followed by a French-Venetian force and met in the Battle of La Mata on the 7th of October 1513, in which the very best of Venetian nobility were cut down in a catastrophic loss. Venice at this stage probably wished it had stayed on the other side of the fence, but there was a light in the end of the tunnel in the form of the papal leadership of the Holy League. Julius II, as I mentioned before, had died in February 1513 of a fever, and his replacement, Leo X, while certainly not a Francophile, was nonetheless disinterested in the kind of military policies of his predecessor, and the entire Holy League began to strain under its lack of a spiritual and strategic figurehead, which saw the Holy Romans and the Spanish begin to disagree over tactics, and the English, under Henry VIII, seek a withdrawal and conduct a separate peace with France and Venice. In 1514, Louis continued the slow progress of the war, albeit with a bit more positivity than 1513, thanks to a secure flank absent of hostile Englishmen and the news that Julius was no longer present as the Holy League's guiding force. Cordova and Alviano continued their skirmishing for the remainder of the year, with little actual result due to the needs of both sides to accumulate more resources and manpower after years of war. It wouldn't be until 1515 that the war really began to take shape. Thanks to the death of Louis of France and the coronation of Francis I in January. Francis was named Duke of Milan in his coronation and sought to acquire what he held to be his birthright in the northern Italian lands. By July, matters came to a head when Francis assembled an army and marched towards Italy to meet his Swiss and papal enemies. Francis bypassed the army that blocked the main Alpine passes, surprised and routed the Milanese cavalry at Villafranca, and when Francis's forces met the main body of the Swiss army at the Battle of Marignano on 14th of September 1515, the Swiss were defeated decisively for the first time in living memory, thanks to the French combination of hard cavalry and precise artillery barrages. The papal contingent under the guidance of Leo X sought peace after years of war Leo hadn't wanted in the first place, and the strategic dodging done by Alviano in his avoidance of battle with the Spanish general Cordova meant that the two French armies could combine and appear as an unbeatable force. Maximilian led another invasion of North Italy in January 1516, but the Treaty of Noyon, signed by France and Spain in August 1516, recognised Spanish claims to Naples and French claims to Milan and both concluded a peace, leaving Max truly alone against France. Max made one last go at it, but still could make no headway against Milan, and he sued for peace also in December 1516 with the Treaty of Brussels. Finally, after eight years, the second lot of the Italian wars, a series of wars that had originally started as a war against Venice, ended in late 1516 with a victorious France, and in Italy returned to the status quo of 1508. However, the peace would not last long. In early 1516, Ferdinand of Spain had died, to be succeeded by his son, Charles I. This same Charles would then succeed his grandfather, Maximilian. Yes, that Max we've been talking about all this time, once Max died in 1519. Charles I of Spain then became Charles V of one of the greatest empires in Europe since Charlemagne, 
and held official dominion over Spain, Naples, the Netherlands, the Holy Roman Empire, parts of Hungary, parts of the Balkans, and parts of Poland and Belgium. Francis of France was furious at this turn of events, and would begin a new set of wars in 1521, beside France's multipolar ally from the previous set of wars, Venice. So the political landscape of Europe was about to change with the coronation of Charles V in 1519, but another event was occurring in the Holy Roman Empire which would have dramatic implications for the religious and spiritual landscape of not just Europe, but the rest of the world. On the 31st of October 1517, an individual hammered a document to the church door in Wittenberg, as was that university's custom. What was not custom was the contents of that document, and the character of that individual who would come to forever be associated with their ideas. The man's name was Martin Luther, and though he began life intending to be a lawyer, by the end of his life he would have redefined the idea of the Christian faith and begun the Reformation, the movement within Christianity that would separate the Christian church once again, and which would lead to a twofold combination of increased inter-European religious conflicts the most ruin of which being the Thirty Years' War, and a dramatic reduction in the power and influence of the papacy. Venice, being the original focus of this episode before the war against it became so convoluted, deserves, in my opinion, its own kind of epilogue. So here it is, in the form of our erstwhile history friend David Gilmore, who writes, quote, The constant changing of sides by all the main players makes this one of the most cynical as well as frivolous periods in European diplomacy. It certainly forced the Venetians to realise that they were no longer a fully independent power. For survival, they now needed France as an ally or else Spain, which from 1519 was joined to the Empire under Charles V, the heir of the Imperial, Castilian and Aragonese thrones. End quote. Venice would go on to play significant roles in the defeat of Ottoman forces, particularly at Lepanto, and a prize for whoever can tell me when that battle took place and what it meant for Europe. But Venice also enjoyed something of a resurgence, staying sensibly clear of Franco-Spanish wars and busying itself with expanding through a fleet of obsolete ships through the central Mediterranean Sea. The indisputable fact, though, was that Venice would never be the same sovereign power after the Holy League of Cambrai. Despite its technical emergence on the side of the victorious powers, it was in effect a de facto subject of French politics and policy, and would spend the next few centuries in relative irrelevance. Perhaps then, the militant policies of Julius II were successful after all. One can only imagine the shape Europe would have taken had a certain jealous pope never moved to curb the influence of the city of canals. But that is a story for another day. We have now reached the end of this war, but not the end of this podcast. Please stay tuned for the next section of When Diplomacy Fails. Today's national anthem comes to you from Germany, or the Holy Roman Empire, or Austria, or the Habsburgs. The remarkable Deutschland über alles was a staple of the German nation for many centuries. Its association with the Nazi regime and resulting bad press emerged during the playing of the first verse of the 1936 Berlin Olympics. A common misconception today is that the phrase Germany, Germany above everything, for which the anthem is most famous, is meant as a racist term for the positioning of Germany above the rest of the world, 
but in actual fact this is not the case. The anthem was adopted by Joseph Hayden to provide music for the poem God Save Fran the Emperor, in reference to Francis II of the Holy Roman Empire, who was in fact the last Holy Roman Emperor. Then a German national from Breslau, Prussia, called August Heinrich Hoffmann, wrote the most famous lyrics of the anthem in the early 1840s inspired by the nationalism and liberal principles of the day that would explode in the 1848 revolutions. Both of these men, Hayden and Hoffmann, played a significant part in establishing the anthem as first Austria's, then Germany's national anthem in 1922. Today only the third and final verse is sung as Germany's national anthem, with the first, containing the phrase Deutschland, Deutschland über alles, remaining the most controversial and thus excluded verse owing to its Nazi associations, however misplaced. Regardless, the theme is an absolute cracker, and is in fact my alarm for waking me up in the morning, however that makes you feel. Here it is, the instrumental version of Deutschland Lied, or in English, Song of the Germans. Today's podlight shines on David Crowther's History of England podcast, which is a chronological podcast covering the history of England pretty much every week. Dave is a remarkable storyteller, has quite a delicious accent, and will warm the cockles of your heart with some great Crowtherisms. You'll have to listen in to see exactly what I mean. You can find the podcast on iTunes, and also check out his website, www.thehistoryofengland.com. Dave was also kind enough to let me use his podcast, coming up on a year ago now, to get my baby across to a wider audience. Which is why I'll always have a soft spot for him and his baby. So go check him out, and if you want to laugh, check out the podcast he allowed me to do on Bannockburn, back when this podcast was only developing as an idea. Are you a fan of the Cold War? What about the political implications of communism? the repression of domestic freedoms, or the diplomatic flurry of activity that characterised the latter half of the 20th century. If you are, then the following book is for you. Tony Judd's Post-War, A History of Europe from 1945 is an exhaustive, essential book for anyone looking to learn more about the period in the world after World War II. Judd's narrative style, his delivery, and insight as a historian make this book perhaps one of the most important works published so far in the 21st century, considering it was released in 2010. The late Judd makes a period of history many might think they know much about and are bored with fascinating, interesting, and enlightening, 
As you can imagine, I'm a big fan of his, and you can be too if you follow these simple steps. You can begin listening to Mr. Judd's work for free. Yes, free. All you have to do is follow the link www.audibletrial.com forward slash WDF podcast. And that link is also in the description section of the When Diplomacy Fails Facebook page in case you forget it. To begin your free 30-day trial of Audible and to begin listening to your free audiobook. Once you've downloaded, you can simply quit Audible altogether and keep the audiobook. But if you'd rather stay on and get more audiobooks, then you can, and probably should, do that too. Finally, folks, I'd like you to remember to be fit. Be fit is an acronym I've developed for people to better remember how to support, get in contact with, and inquire about this podcast. But there's been some new additions this time around, though, so pay attention. First of all, you can now find this podcast on Stitcher Radio, and search that if you're not aware of what it is. You'll also find us on iTunes and, of course, the hosting site. Okay, so let's run through BFIT now. B is for blog, wdfpodcast.blogspot.ie, where you can do two different things. The first is look at the contents of the actual blog itself, because I'll now be releasing the bibliography of each episode that I use, because a few people have requested it, and I think it's a good idea. It makes me look a lot more scholarly than I actually am, so of course that's good. A second thing is, if you see in the corner there's a donate button, then you can, if you feel so financially inclined, donate to the podcast. It's all done through PayPal, and if you have any questions at all, then by all means get in contact with me as well. E is for email, wdfpodcast.hotmail.com, or you can email me directly. I will respond to as many emails as I can, but occasionally I might take longer than I'd like to due to me being too busy. And in response to a question one of my listeners has asked me already, yes, I am still with Hotmail, despite them turning Hotmail into this really annoying thing called Outlook, which doesn't work properly on my phone, but I'll still try my very best to respond to you. Damn you, Microsoft. F is for Facebook, where you can like the Facebook page, as I already mentioned, and we're nearing 600 likes now, so that's pretty cool. And you can also find out any information you want to know about this podcast. Generally, it's all in there, such as the link to the Audible trial I already mentioned, and the link to the direct hosting site, which, if you want to find it, it's right there. In case you don't like iTunes or Stitcher or any of that kind of thing. Facebook is also the place you should go if you want to join a History Podcasts group. It really is a fantastic group to join, guys. If you have history podcasts that you listen to aside from this one, but you were never really sure how to get in contact with or talk to people who like history podcasts as much as you do, then History Podcasts is a great group to join. So I recommend searching it in the Facebook bar and joining it as soon as you possibly can, because you won't regret it and you will fill your days with joyful historical discussion. Maybe. I is for iTunes, where you can review this podcast. And subscribe to this podcast as well, if you're into that sort of thing, i.e. not searching for it every single week. I really do appreciate any and all reviews that you send me, unless they're highly negative, in which case I will cry and pretend they don't exist, or at least try my very hardest to block you from my memory. Finally, T is for tell somebody, because word of mouth still works pretty well, and it doesn't cost you a single thing. So any historically-minded friends you might have, let them know what I do, and that I do it pretty damn well. Okay, just let them know what I do. That'd be great. Thank you. Just before we get out of here, here's an announcement on the winner of the recent When Diplomacy Fails competition. After randomly drawing names from a hat, I have selected the winner, and the history friend who will choose the next war for me to cover in When Diplomacy Fails 23 is... 
Benjamin Ashwell, who now faces the formidable task of selecting the next war to cover. Thanks to all who participated in the competition, and don't worry, you'll have another chance in the future. Unless, of course, this experience scares me off doing anything like this again. I'm kidding. Well, history friends, that's the end of the podcast. My name is Zach, and you have been listening to When Diplomacy Fails 21. Thanks! deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.